Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. As we continue in Galatians, uh, we're beginning in chapter 4, and uh, we have taken our time through Galatians. I'm kind of reminded of a guy that uh, used to work at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, was leading worship at a seminar at the Cove one time, and, and uh, he said, I want you to remember it's worship, not rush-up. We're not trying to rush up something. We're trying to worship the Lord, and part of worship is the Word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so it, when you consider that Galatians is one of the pivotal books for evangelicals because of its teaching on the just shall live by faith, then it is important that we take time to look at it because Galatians, as we talked about several weeks ago, is like a cliff notes of the book of Romans. It is said of Martin Lloyd-Jones, he preached through Romans verse by verse, and a couple left the church and went overseas, and he was in Romans uh, chapter 3 and verse 1, and they were gone five and a half years, and they came back, and he was in Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. And uh, so you can take your time going through because of the richness of the doctrine and the truth that is in this book is so crucial to our understanding. It deals with our motivation. It deals with our focus. It deals with what we put our trust in, how we understand faith, and how we understand the Christian life. Paul has been spending much of chapter 3 covering 2,000 years of Jewish history. He has talked about the promises to Abraham, how God gave the promises to Abraham. Then he talks about how God gave the law to Moses. Now in chapter 4, he's going to talk about Christ coming in the fullness of time, the fulfillment of the promises and the law. So when Jesus comes, everything in the Old Testament reaches its fullness You cannot exclude the Old Testament from Scripture and say, well, we're just New Testament Christians because the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. It tells us who the coming Messiah is, how you'll know who he is, how you will recognize him as opposed to false prophets and false teachers. It will say that he is the only fulfillment of the law. And so Paul is going to contrast here the condition of man under the law and now the condition of man under the Son. Galatians 4 and verse 1, now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians. Now you'll notice the word under here several times uh, in these first seven verses, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
Now, the first thing we're going to talk about is that God may seem slow, but he's never late. Does God seem slow in your life sometimes? You know why, don't you? It's because you've got impatience. (laughs) That's not flowers. That's an attitude. (laughs) You've got impatience. And trials and tests and delays teach us patience. And sometimes God seems slow, but he's never late. That little phrase, in the fullness of time, means that he came at the right time for all time. When Jesus came, he came at the right time. He wasn't a minute late. He wasn't a minute early. He came at the right time for all time. The fullness of all time was met in him. It was not accidental. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 tells us about his birth. It says, but as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Jesus stepped out of glory into the earth that he created and revealed God to us. First John chapter 4 and verse 14 says, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, if somebody ever says to you, well, Jesus is just a good teacher. Jesus is just a good moral example. Jesus is just one of many prophets. That's not what the Bible says about Jesus. Now, some people will tell you, as one man did in a cab ride that we were in a few months ago, he said, oh, Jesus never says that he's the Savior. Jesus never says that he's the Son of God. They didn't read the Gospel of John where he clearly says who he is. And 1 John 4, 4 says, the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. You either got to mark that verse out to come up with your ideas about Jesus, or you got to leave it in there and believe that Jesus is the Son of the Father, the Savior of the world, which is exactly what he says he is. He came to an obscure village called Bethlehem. Nobody really knew where Bethlehem was. The only thing people knew about Bethlehem was that's where Rachel died. It was a place of death, and now it becomes a place of life. And from an obscure village and an almost nothing beginning as far as the world was concerned, he will one day come again and will rule the whole world. This is the Savior who was sent in the fullness of time. His first coming was in the fullness of time. His second coming will be in the fullness of time. No man knows the hour or the day when he will come again. You say, well, you know, we've been talking about the second coming of Jesus for 2,000 years and it still hadn't happened. Doesn't mean it's not going to. Just because it hasn't happened according to what you think or your chart says or what somebody tells you doesn't mean that Jesus is not coming. He said he's coming. And so we live with an expectation that it could be today. Might not be, but it could be. And his fullness of coming will be when the Father says it's time to come. Go back, redeem your church, take your church. Now, it's a long way from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3 to Matthew chapter 2. It's a long way from the fall in the Garden of Eden to the redemption that comes through the birth of a virgin-born son. But God had it all planned out. You see, if Jesus had come a hundred years earlier, it would have been too early. It wouldn't have been the right time. If he had come a hundred years later, it wouldn't have been the right time. 
Uh, I was in a motel room this week, and I happened to turn on, and they were talking about the Roman engineers and how the Romans were the first to develop a roadway system. Before the time of the Roman Empire, there were no roads. There were just paths, worn-out paths, and you just went over mountains. You didn't go through mountains. You, you just, it, it was almost impossible to travel unless on foot or by horse. Very few places you could go with a wagon. The Roman Empire, in its expansion, began to lay out roadways, and they would dig a deep trench, and then they would put sand in it, then they would put gravel in it, then they would put stones in it to lay a foundation, then they would flatten stones, and between those flattened stones, they would pour sand to give room and leverage for water to drain out, and they had shoulders on the roads, and they built it, they thought, for their armies to travel. In the fullness of time, those roads were used for the gospel to go out. When you look at a map of the road system of the Roman Empire, the road system would take you to any part of the known world all the way to the shores where you would catch a boat to go to England. The road system was incredible at the time of Christ. It was done within a hundred years of the time of Christ. It was finished at the time of Christ. The road system throughout the Roman Empire was completed. He came at the right time politically. One government, Rome, ruled the world. They controlled situations around the world. They policed those roads. They provided the avenues on which the gospel as we see in the Gospels and in Acts, was carried out to the world. It was the right time culturally because Greek was the accepted world language. Everyone in the Roman Empire was required to be bilingual. You had to speak more than one language, and whatever your native language was, you needed to be able to speak Greek as well. Greek being the language in which the majority of the New Testament was written, Greek being the language in which the gospel has been communicated in the original scriptures, it is in the fullness politically, educationally, religiously, culturally, in every way, time is always tied to redemption. Don't ever think that these things just happen. Oh, Julius Caesar was a brilliant man. He built a road. He was there in his time to do what he did because God was going to use what he did to further his gospel. Time always is bracketed in the story of redemption. It is like the old line goes, history is his story. It's the story of Jesus. Acts chapter 19 and verse 10. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Within one generation of when Jesus walked the earth, all of the known world had heard the gospel. Every culture, every country, the gospel had been taken to the world within one generation after the time of Christ. In fact, they were closer to reaching the world with the gospel then than we are now. We are losing the world because we lack the passion and the tenacity and the sacrificial spirit that it takes to reach the world. They didn't. They gave themselves to share the gospel to reach the world. And so I would say to you, God delayed until the fullness of time to send his son, born of a woman, born under the law, but he will also delay his second coming for one reason. He has a redemptive purpose in it. 
The reason Jesus has not come yet is he has a redemptive purpose in mind. There are people to be saved. There are gospel messages to be shared. There are cultures to be reached. And in the fullness of that time, that's when he'll come. That's why we should be investing in missions and giving to missions and going on mission trips and doing the things that we do because it is a part of God's redemptive purpose to delay the second coming of Jesus. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, verse 2 carries a similar idea. Until the date set by the Father. There was a moment in time when an earthly father would hand over the inheritance or the control of the estate to his son. Now, what the Jewish people call that is a bar mitzvah. A bar mitzvah is a time, and bar mitzvah means son of the law. And in a bar mitzvah, it's an elaborate ceremony that is held in the Jewish culture where a son becomes responsible. A son is considered a man. He is open to receive the inheritance. He's always been a son. He's always been an heir. But there's a transition moment when the responsibility for obedience to the law becomes that son's. In other words, he can no longer say, I'm not responsible. My mom and dad are the reason I'm the way I am. Do you get the point? There comes a point in life and the Jewish bar mitzvah symbolizes this, where this young man who's going through his bar mitzvah by the Western Wall in Israel, where this young man can no longer ever again say, I'm not responsible for my life. He is now responsible to obey the law and to handle his inheritance properly. So he cannot blame anyone else if he gets in trouble, if he fails, if he blows it. He cannot claim irresponsibility or ignorance. There is knowledge, there is awareness, and there is a responsibility and accountability that comes with this bar mitzvah. Now, if you want to understand verses 1 through 3, imagine a child, when he was born, he was destined to get an inheritance. But he's a child. You don't go to that boy when he's 18 months old and say, here's your father's inheritance, have it and do with it as you wish. That would be irresponsible on the father's part. In reality, the inheritance is his by promise. But in reality, it's not his until the father says it's his. Are you with me? This way means yes. You with me? It's his by promise because he's a son. But it's not his in reality until the father determines the time. He's the legal heir. He's got it by right, but not by fact. Only when he goes through the bar mitzvah, only at the time set by his father, does he get that. Now, in the Roman culture, if you take the bar mitzvah illustration and lay it aside over here, in the Roman culture, as we talked about in the last message, they would have a guardian, a steward, a tutor who would train the child and the child would have to obey the slave, the guardian, the tutor, because the father gave that guardian responsibility to raise and to protect 
that child until such a time as the father said, you don't need a tutor anymore. Now you are responsible for the things that you have learned and heard. Now you are responsible to act accordingly. So the boy would take orders from this guardian until the date set by the father. And the father set the date. The boy didn't set the date. Remember, that's one of the things the prodigal son did. I want my inheritance now. You give me what I want now. And the father did, but the father didn't say it was time for him to have his inheritance. You see, some people think, I want what I want because I want what I want. And the father says, it's not time for you to get it yet. And the father determined the date when the inheritance could be given. Now, let's just use a practical illustration. And this one is real simple, and those of you who are Elvis fans will understand it. You remember when Elvis died, he had one daughter, and her name is Lisa Marie. Lisa Marie was a little girl when her dad died. She was given the bulk of Elvis's estate. It was put in trust and managed for her She got a certain percentage when she was 18 years old. She got the full estate and control over the estate when she was 21. Why? Because some lawyer, some guardian, some tutor advised Elvis, no matter what happens, you don't just hand this over without some strings attached. You make sure there are conditions so that when she is old enough to know what to do and how to manage the estate and to make decisions about your life, she will be equipped to do it. And so although she was heir to Elvis's estate and there was money there, to provide for her to live, she didn't become the multimillionaire until she reached a certain age. And at that date, there was a date set by her father when he said, at this point, she gets this much. And at this point, she gets this much. She gets it all. Now, if we don't understand that, what we think is, is that people come to Christ anytime they want to. But the Holy Spirit is a convicting spirit, and the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin. And that is why when a person is under conviction of sin, they need to respond to the gospel at that moment. Because nowhere in the Bible do you see where it says you can get saved anytime you want to. You get saved when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. And at that moment... You're either responsible as a son to respond accordingly or you condemn yourself because you don't come to salvation through Christ. You either reject or you accept. There's an inheritance out there. You got to respond to it. So, Paul is saying that before Christ, the Jews were under the guardianship of the law. He's saying that the Gentiles were under the guardianship of the law of conscience. That's what he teaches us in Romans 1, 2, and 3. That's why Paul can say whether we're under guardianship of the law, as the Jews are, or under conscience, as Gentiles are, let's say we are, that's why Paul can say all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Why? All have come short of the law and all have come short of conscience. 
There's none righteous, no, not one. Why? None are as righteous as the law, and no one's conscience is righteous 100% of the time. And so Paul says we are condemned as sinners, and yet there's this inheritance out there. This potential inheritance, this promise that I didn't realize until I responded to the grace of God. I I didn't know what all it meant when I responded to the grace of God. When I came to Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, if you'd said, by the way, you're an heir and a joint heir with Christ. You you have an inheritance. You have riches and glory. I would have gone, huh? Uh, you're, You're telling a baby Christian something that is almost impossible for them to grasp. Being down the road a little bit as a believer, I understand what that inheritance and what it means to be an heir a little more than I did when I first got saved. He says that God sent forth his son, verse 4. God sent forth the spirit of his son, verse 6. That word sent forth is the same as the word apostle. In other words, God had a defined task, an appointed mission for his son. And in the fullness of time, the Son left glory to come to earth to fulfill the mission and to provide the promise. And so it doesn't get any better than redemption through Christ. Look at verse 5. In order that he might redeem those who were under the law. Now there are two stages of salvation in operation in verse 5. First is a positive and second one is negative. Two stages, a positive and a negative. To redeem, that's positive. Redeem from what? From under the law. But we receive adoption as sons. So there's redemption, which is positive. The, the, the negative is we weren't sons, now we are. We've received something we never had before. Then there is the emptying of sin of its power and the filling of God's glory. We've been emptied from the power of sin. Sin has lost its power and its hold over over us. Now we have been fulfilled with the possibility of living our lives to the glory of God. So, Paul uses a word redeem. You know what the word redeem, it's it's a slavery term. It means to buy out of the marketplace. Someone goes in. And they look around in a group of people that are in a slave market and they go in and they pick out one and they take them out and they take them outside the slave market and they release them and set them free. They pay the price, they pay the ransom, they pay the fee so that the person can move from slavery to freedom. And Jesus walked into our lives one day. We were in the slave market of sin. We were shackled and bound by sin. We were headed toward a dungeon, toward a pit, toward hell. And Jesus reached up and marked us out and paid the price with his blood and took us out and said, I've set you free. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. That's why we call this series Free to Live, because when Jesus sets you free, he doesn't set you free to go back under the law. He sets you free to live under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now, he did this. He set us free from the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. I was conceived in sin. My birth mother had an affair with someone, 
and I am an illegitimate child by natural birth. I was conceived in sin, but two people named Grover and Winnie Cat said, we will take what is illegitimate and we will bring him into our home and give him our name and make him legitimate and he will be heir to everything that is ours will be his. Conceived in sin. Freed by grace. Now listen to me. I didn't have anything to do with being conceived in sin. That wasn't my choice. But my parents made a choice. We'll take him. They didn't say, line up 30 kids and we'll pick the cutest one. Because they would have never picked me. But they said, never seeing me. They said, that girl's pregnant. We'll take her baby, boy or girl. They couldn't tell back then whether it's boy. We'll take that baby, boy or girl, and we'll take that baby into our home and we'll raise that baby as our own and we will give that baby our name and we will call that baby ours and that baby will be just as much ours by adoption as he would have been by birth. And everything that my parents had was mine. Now, did I get it all that day? No. But when my mom and dad died, they left an estate. And that estate lives on today. That estate provided for my children's college education. That estate allowed me to give more than I possibly could have to generations. You see, God blessed me when I didn't deserve to be blessed. God showed me grace when I didn't deserve to have grace shown to me. When I could have been aborted in a back alley, God stepped in and he worked in the heart of a young lady and she gave birth and she gave that baby away out of love and somebody took me and I am a child conceived in sin, but I am a son and an heir. And nothing can change that. Now, if you can grab that, you can begin to understand what, what John said in 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it does not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Can I just ask you, just write down in your notes somewhere, that little phrase in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, how great. The Greek word means it's overwhelming. How overwhelming or exotic it is, the love of God. It is like something that has come from another country. It's a picture of someone bringing gifts 
to a king from another country and saying, these are evidences of the great wealth and the great uh, prosperity of this country, and we give them to you as a gift. God came from another country. He came from heaven in the form of Jesus Christ, and he came down, and at the cross, he said, this is the extravagant love of God for you. This is how much God cares for you. This is how much God is willing to do to have a relationship with you. This is how much God wants to be in relationship and you to be a son, a child of his. What exotic love the Father has poured out on us. There's two things that are hard for me. It's hard for me to believe that anybody would want to adopt me. I don't even like myself sometimes. So it's hard for me to believe that anybody would want to adopt me. But the harder thing for me to believe is why God would love me enough to die for me. I can almost get my hands on somebody loving a baby enough to adopt them. I I can understand that. But I can't understand a holy God loving a sinner enough to die for him. I'm just glad he did. I can't explain it, but I know he does it because I see it in changed lives. And so let's look at it. First of all, our redemption originated from the throne of God. Our redemption originated from the throne of God. Jesus never laid aside his deity. He laid aside his glory. And it was Jesus, the preexistent son of God, who manifested himself in human form. Spurgeon says, the man who denies the deity of Christ deliberately refuses the only way of escape from the wrath to come. He dares to face his maker without a counselor, an advocate, or a plea for mercy. Our redemption came from the throne of God. Redemption's not your idea. Redemption's God's idea. Secondly, our redemption was provided by the God-man, born of a woman under the law. Born of a woman under the law. And so now he's talking about his humanity, his deity. He came from the throne in glory, his humanity born of a woman under the law. And so Paul is presenting Christ in balance, all man, all God. As a man, Jesus voluntarily submitted himself to the structure and laws that he created. Do you realize that Jesus Christ submitted himself to the law of gravity? Until the ascension. Then then he said, the law of gravity is not going to hold me anymore. I choose for it not to. Jesus submitted himself to the law of sinking if you try to walk on water, (laughs) except one time. And he came out to him on a boat and he walked on water to him. Born of a woman, born under the law. Now, what's interesting is Jesus is the only person that has ever lived that could, this could be said of born of a woman because the rest of us are born of a woman and a man. Jesus, Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit, only Jesus, can it be said, was born of a woman. Muhammad was born of a woman and a man. Buddha was born of a woman and a man. Joseph Smith was born of a woman and a man. The Virgin Mary was born of a woman and a man. Name any religious leader, Name any hero of history, they all have one thing in common, born of a woman and of a man. Jesus alone of all people that have ever walked this earth, only born of a woman. He was born of a woman and under 
the law. He stayed under the law. He subjected himself, which is the third thing. Our Redeemer was the fulfillment of the law. The fulfillment of the law. You see, if he'd broken one, he couldn't have saved us. So there's two things there under the fulfillment of the law. First of all, he perfectly kept the law. Secondly, he paid the penalty of the law. As the one who fulfilled the law, he perfectly kept it. And secondly, he paid the penalty of the law because the law says that if you sin, you die. And he did not die for his sins. He died for ours. And then finally, there's our redemption, which is sealed by the Spirit. Verse 6, since forth, that word apostle, which you get our word apostle again, same as in verse 4. Let me give you two things here very quickly. First of all, the Son adopted us. The Son adopted us. And the Spirit assures us of that adoption. The Son adopted us. And the Spirit assures us of that adoption. There is more to salvation than a salvage operation. God did not come just to get us out of hell. God came to put his spirit inside of us so that we could live in the fullness of what he wanted us to be. In fact, Jesus set aside his divine prerogatives and he came in sinless humanity to show us what man had been intended to be all along. All Jesus was as the God-man was, this is what I intended for you from the beginning, to live this kind of life, to be a vehicle of the divine presence is what I wanted you to be. But sin came into the world and man fell and man had to be redeemed. And we've been adopted into the family. In redemption, we receive the status as sons. We receive the status as sons. The Spirit empowers us to live like sons. I may have the status of a son, but I may not live in the power of being a son. There's a difference. You see, when my mom died, my dad took me to the bank. And my signature replaced her signature so that in case anything happened to my dad, I could sign the checks, I could make the decisions, I could handle the accounts, I could handle the investments, and I could be equal with him in how the monies were handled. And so suddenly, I had always had the status as a son. Now I was empowered as a son to act on behalf of my father. Are you with me? When you understand that the Holy Spirit empowers you to live and act on behalf of the Heavenly Father, you'll live differently. You'll think differently. You'll make different choices. Because you realize I'm a living representative of what Christ can do in a life. That's what I'm supposed to be. And when I fall short of that, I may have the status of son, but I'm not living like a son. On my own, I have no power to live up to the law, so I'm lost. And on my own, I have no power to live this life, so I'm defeated. That's why the Spirit seals us, Galatians 4, 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God, Romans 8, 17. 
And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, let me ask you to write down a couple of things here. First of all, Christ receives everything. And through Christ, we receive everything. Anything I have in the Christian life, if it's outside of the boundaries of Jesus Christ, is not of God. The Holy Spirit never leads me to act, say, or do anything that's outside of the boundaries of Jesus Christ and the Word of Christ, which is the written Word we call the Bible. And so Christ receives everything, and then I receive everything through Christ. So through Him and through the fact that I'm a son, I have freedom from sin and the law. But through the Holy Spirit, I have power to live a free life. I'm freed from sin and the law, but also have power to live because of the Spirit. I've not just been redeemed, I've been empowered. In fact, in Romans 8, you hardly see the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans until Romans 8. I think the Holy Spirit's only mentioned twice in Romans up to Romans 8. And then in Romans 8, he's mentioned like eight times. Why? Because Romans 8 is the hinge chapter. It tells us how we live the life. It tells us how we walk with God. It tells us how how we live above condemnation. It tells us how we live in victory. It tells us how we overcome in our lives. Romans 8, the predominant person in Romans 8 is the Holy Spirit of God. Romans 7, there's a struggle because you don't see the Holy Spirit because that's flesh. That's me trying and not trying, me doing and not doing. That's me messing up. Romans 8, everything's changes because of the Holy Spirit empowering us. He is limited only by the measure of my availability to him. Somebody says to you, well, you just need more of the Holy Spirit. No, you don't. That, that is a perversion of biblical truth. You got all Listen to me. You got all of the Holy Spirit the moment you got saved. You can't get another inch, another ounce, another drop of the Holy Spirit. But he can get a whole lot more of you. The issue is not how much of the Holy Spirit do you have. That's settled in salvation. The issue is how much of you does the Holy Spirit have. Is he in control of your life? Paul talks about this over and over again in Galatians and in Romans. And can I just tell you this as we're wrapping it up? When you got the Holy Spirit, you gained more in Christ than you lost in Adam. And we lost our inheritance. We lost our sonship. We lost our intimate fellowship. We, came, we became aware of sin. We became aware of guilt and shame and fear and bondage. But when you got Christ, you got more in Christ than you lost in Adam. Now that's good news. If you're lost today, come to Jesus. Find out what it means to be a son. Find out what it means to be accepted by God into the beloved. Find out what it means to be a part of God's family. Find out what it means to be saved and to know that your sins are forgiven, that they've been washed as white as snow, that God doesn't hold your past against you, that he has died for your sin, past, present, and future. And if you're saved... 
live in an intimate relationship with your heavenly father. Don't know him as a father that you barely talk to, barely connect to, don't really understand. Get in an intimate relationship with him because if you're a son, you're an heir with Christ. And when God looks at you, he looks at you through Jesus. And he can't love you any more than he already loves you. The only question is, could you love him more than you're loving him right now? Because you're not going to get any more his love. He's already given it all. What he wants from you is love in return. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Catt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.